Um, the last time that I spoke with my grandfather on my mother's side um, was about the gospel. It was Thanksgiving 2015, um, and he went out to his car parked under the tree at my mom's house, and he had the door propped open, and as he does, he was uh, smoking away, and um, I thought, there's my chance. So I went, and um, I shared the gospel with him, and it was a wonderful, well, not really wonderful, I was terrified, um, but um, it was a great experience because he died only a few weeks later um, coming up on the anniversary now, and I can't remember the exact details of the conversation. Um, it's more images that come to mind, except the fact that I was really nervous. Um, it's always really hard to share the gospel with family members, for whatever reason. Um, at least that's the way it is for me. And much more with your grandfather, whom you really never had a, a, a real conversation with. So I was nervous. But the one thing I do remember about this conversation um, was that he wanted rest. Time and again, he would mention rest. And I could see the weariness on his face, and I could hear it in his voice. His days were coming to an end. We didn't know it, but I think he knew it. And he was ready to go, and he was hoping to find relief on the other side, to find rest from his toil. And I've only been, um, I've only been able to minister to people on their deathbed a handful of times, but that's a very common experience, believer or not. What it seems that they're looking for at that moment um, is rest. And those memories now, when they come to mind, um, now having studied this passage in Genesis or the previous passage in chapter 3, it, that's what comes to mind, God's pronouncement to Adam and Eve in the garden. Humans were created to share in God's rest. They're created on day six, and the first day of their existence is day seven, the Sabbath day, where God rests from his work, and he invites creation into his rest. That's what we were created for. But because we listen to the voice of the serpent, anxious toil is our lot. To the woman, God says, in pain you will bring forth children, and to the man in toil you're going to work the ground. And it's paradigmatic for our entire existence, toil. Genuine rest evades us in a world that has been given over to death and to corruption. Or as the psalmist puts it in Psalm 90, verse 10, as for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for it is soon gone and we fly away. Their pride is but labor and sorrow. Yet, despite all this, we seem to have this um, unlearned nostalgia for a time when things were different. That seventh day I mentioned, the Sabbath rest seems to be implanted on every human heart. We long for, in other words, a beginning that we cannot return to. A rest that, as we reach out to grab it, slips through our fingers. Now, I don't mean rest right merely in a physical sense, though that's surely part of it. But in this deeper spiritual sense as well, there is an agitation, um, a disquiet that afflicts our soul. Of course, coming to Christ, that's relieved. But we experience it, even as believers. 
if not as acutely, when we did as unbelievers. And that disquiet is the secret motivation of our lives. We reach after and grasp for this or that to uh, quiet that uneasiness, to still our hearts. And given enough time, I'm I'm thinking of my grandfather here, of those times I've sat beside um, someone headed for death, and given enough time, that uneasiness piles up and it becomes a weariness deep in the soul. We want rest. We long for rest. So the question is, who's going to give us that rest? Where is it going to come from? Now, the answer, obviously, you're in church, is Jesus. The one who said, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, you might be wondering, um, what does any of this have to do with Noah and the flood and the destruction of the human race? And that's a fair question. But uh, what I hope to attempt to demonstrate is that the passage before us witnesses to, and it prefigures Jesus, specifically in the figure of Noah, who has come to destroy the works of the devil and to give us rest, to lead us through the waters of decreation into a new creation where we can have rest. So we've begun with that theme and um, we'll end with it. But in the meantime, what I want to do is just work our way through the story of Noah and the flood. So that's what we'll do in the meantime and that'll occupy us for the bulk of the message. Now the narrative begins in chapter 6 with God looking down upon the earth. It reads, verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I'd like to draw your attention to that first phrase, the Lord saw. Now in the scriptures, um, eyes are the organs of judgment. One sees and assesses the situation and then renders an appropriate decision. Now, um, that's not too foreign to us because we use that same metaphor today. Um, That's not how I see it, we say to someone in a disagreement. Or reflecting upon it, we just don't see eye to eye. Our sight is likened to our judgment, right? to our ability to assess the truth of the situation, whether good or bad. So hence the creation narrative says in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 31, that God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. He rendered uh, judgment and then pronounced that everything he created was very good. Or Eve, right? She listened to the voice of the serpent, and then she looks anew at the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it says she saw the tree was good for food, and she took and ate. She saw and made a judgment. It was good, and then she disobeyed. And here the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth. So everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Remember, that's the essence of the sin in the garden. Not allowing God to define good and evil, but defining it for ourselves. And if you read the book of Judges, you know that's not a good thing. Um, when 
men and women define good and evil for themselves. Um, so there's humanity doing this very thing. But regardless of what they thought about the situation, God knew the truth. He saw the human heart, that the intent was only evil continually. And again, the situation is reiterated in verses 11 and 12. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. It was corrupt in the sight of God. God looked on the earth. He's rendering judgment. Um, So the narrative, anyway, um, being a dad is the best. Um, The narrative um, works hard um, to underscore the comprehensiveness of the problem. Going back to verse 5 for a minute, every intent, right, every intent was only evil continually. Um, God blessed the human race in the beginning to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. But here, violence has filled the earth. Violence has become omnipresent. All flesh had corrupted their way. Now, the scriptural understanding of the human race, it spans two opposites. We are created in the divine image. And therefore, because of that, we are um, capable of awe-inspiring goodness. But that very image makes our potential for wickedness all the greater. Our godlike origin is turned and bent toward the ends and the ways of the serpent. And when our hearts are untethered from the fear of the Lord, and those deepest wicked intents of the heart are not checked, soon violence fills the earth. And that's the way it is in our individual lives, not merely societally. The fear of the Lord, trusting in Him to define good and evil, and then on our part, obeying faithfully, is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of a good and noble existence. But the Scripture says, Proverbs twelve fifteen, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. He judges on his own. It's right in his own eyes. And there's a way, Proverbs 14, 12, which seems right to a man, but in the end, it's the way of death. That faulty judgment, trying to take things in our own hand, is what will lead us astray. And so one path, doing what's right in our own eyes, will lead to the pollution of our lives, like the corruption of the earth in the days of Noah. And the other will make them, the fear of the Lord, into a fruitful garden, like Eden the paradise of God. And that's indeed what Proverbs says, that wisdom is like a tree of life to those who um, partake of it. And so, what is God's response to the violence and corruption of His creation that is now before His eyes? Verse 6, one of the most sobering verses in all of Scripture, the Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth, and He was grieved in his heart. Now I'm reading from the NIV, but in the original Hebrew, I'm the NIV, that's not true, the NASB, um, the divine uh, reaction here is more specific than sorry. It's better translated as something like regretted, or even, as the older King James renders it, repented. And it means 
simply to wish that something had not happened or been done. So, in other words, what the text means to say is that God regretted that he made humanity at all. Things had gotten to such an extent that God mourned over the fact that he made the human race. Now, we have to remember, however, that the scripture here speaks anthropomorphically. Now, what does that word mean? It simply means that we're using human language to express a truth that's beyond description. Or, if you just want to put it more simply, we're, we're talking about God, who is transcendent and above all things, in human terms. And so we have to realize that our words are utterly inadequate to speak about God, but they're the best we've got. So if we push this language too literally, we'd wind up in some dangerous territory. And some um, have done that lately, and it's a bad idea. Um, Does the text mean to imply that God did not know what was going to happen when he created humanity? That somehow he's caught off guard about the wickedness of the world? Does it really mean to imply that the creation of humanity, these image bearers of God, was indeed a mistake? No. Well, what then is it saying? Well, if you take these words, these very human words, and you purge them of all connotations of time and space and matter, everything earthly in them, you have your answer. The Lord was sorry. What it communicates is an anger and a grief staggering to our minds. A depth of grieving past our ever finding out. So what we have here is anthropomorphic speech, and it continues, he was grieved in his heart. Now, does God have a heart with atriums and ventricles and the rest? No. And can we somehow harm God or injure him so as to rob him of his happiness? Also, no. But what was, God, was God grieved in his heart? Yes. It's the Hebrew word yit-aseb. And the only other time it's used in Scripture, and this is, I think, um, worthy of our attention, the only other time it's used in Scripture is when the twelve patriarchs find out that their sister um, had been raped. Genesis uh, 34, verse 7 When the brothers find out, it said the men were grieved, right? That's the same word that's used for God's response. They were grieved and they were very angry. And that also said some light on what was happening on the earth. The violence and corruption was a a, a raping, a, a violence done against God's original plan. So, In our recognition that these are very human ways of speaking about God, we're careful not to dishonor him by turning him into a man. Or in the words of Psalm 50, God says to the children of Israel, You thought that I was altogether like you. No, God is transcendent. God is far above what our words can ever put into reality. But we must be careful on the other side not to evacuate these words of their meaning so that they don't mean anything at all. No, God is grieved, and he is provoked to wrath over human wickedness. It's an expression of his holy love. And coming to an appreciation of that truth, it leads us to the fear of the Lord. God is neither indifferent nor unconcerned about our lives. 
But he takes such a care so as to be grieved when we go astray. As Paul says in the New Testament, not to grieve the Holy Spirit. So his love draws us to revere his holiness. And once we revere his holiness, to then render him obedience. God's heart can be grieved by us. That's his love, which leads us to his holiness, which then leads us to obedience. So continuing, um, now verses 7 and 8. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So in response to what the serpent had bred in humanity and upon the earth, God resolves to blot out or erase his creation. Now, our minds, when we hear this, wiping everything out, clearing the slate, our minds should run back to the promise in the garden. What about the seed of the woman prophesied to crush the serpent's head? Is this the end? Has the serpent indeed won? Has he corrupted things to such an extent that God has to completely wipe the slate? Is there no future and hope for the human race? Now with the same eyes that God saw the wickedness of man, he also saw Noah. And he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah alone is righteous and blameless among the human race. Chapter 7, verse 1, God says, You alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. So while God's heart grieves his image bearers, it finds comfort in this one. In chapter 5, verse 28 or 29 is where that promise is made about Noah. He's going to bring us rest. That word for rest is the same word that's used here when um, God sees Noah. Hence, he's spared, Noah is, and destined to be the beginning of a new human race. Now, there's a tradition um, in certain strands of Judaism. I'm not sure I understand. Me either. Um, certain strands of, uh, of, of Judaism that stem from, from Noah, who's this great intercessory figure, um, also, uh, Daniel, another figure, and Samuel. Um, there's this Jewish tradition called the Zadakim, or the righteous ones. And, you know, it's, it's not theology, but it's something of a, of a maybe old wives' tale. But it goes like this. It's that these people, these righteous ones, um, are the people who in every generation keep the world turning. Their lives are such a perfect example of righteousness that God looks upon them and in effect says, I won't give up on the world just yet. And the Zadokim, these are like living sacrifices. And the tradition says that no one knows who they are. And there's always 36 of them spread across the world um, whose righteousness is so pleasing to God that it covers the world's sin and it keeps divine wrath at bay. Now Noah is such a figure. He delivers the human race and gives it a future by his righteousness. And Noah was singled out from, for this task from his birth. The flood narrative in Genesis 6 through 9 is introduced by chapter 5 with a genealogy. 
that reaches back ten generations from Noah to Adam, who was made in the image of God. And when we read Genesis, a frequent question arises is why the genealogies? There are five total in Genesis, and they come at odd times. And while they do reflect concerns of a different place and time, they serve an important role in advancing the narrative. Redemption, remember, in the garden was promised in the form of a seed or a descendant to come from the woman and to crush the head of the serpent. And genealogies, at least in Genesis, what they do is trace that promise through history one generation at a time. So it begins with Adam, who's made in the image of God, and then it uh, moves on to Seth, who it says is in his father's image. That's the passage's subtle way of saying that that original intent that God had for mankind is carried on in this line. All the world is coming to corruption and decay, but this one slim line, originally tracing back to Adam, who is in the image of God, carries on its original intent. And so we have to pass over all the interesting details, the meaning of the ages, of the names, and etc., and we arrive at Lamech, the father of Noah. And he explains um, the birth or the reason he named his son. It says, Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. So this particular child, ten generations on from Adam, is chosen to bring rest to the human race. Hence the name Noah. I won't try to pronounce the Hebrew, but scholars say that Noah and the word for rest sound very much like one another. And it's not any rest that is promised, but rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord God has cursed. And that's a more than deliberate callback to Genesis 3.17, right, where God pronounces upon Adam the consequences of his disobedience on the screen Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. So God promises, or great promise rather, rests upon this newborn son. He's a messianic figure, Noah. Promised to undo what his ancient ancestor had brought upon the earth. Adam brought anxious toil, and Noah will bring rest and Comfort, and now his time has come. The world has grown old and weary under the dominion of the serpent, and it needs rest. Now, we'll come to it in a minute, but obviously, Noah prefigures the birth of another child who will deliver the human race by his righteousness and who will bring rest to a worry, weary world. But we'll come to that in a minute. So, God. Selects Noah out, and you guys know the story. He constructs him to build the ark. And the means by which the earth is restored is a flood. God will break open the fountains of the deep and loose the floodgates of the heavens, cleansing the earth from the violence that was done upon it. It is essentially an act of decreation. Now, in the, in the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1, we're first introduced to the earth as... What? A a watery waste. Verse 2 of chapter 1, The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. 
The deep there being a reference to the watery abyss which covered the earth. Thus, if God is going to bring form from formlessness and abundance from the void, he has to deal with the waters that cover and span the earth. And so he did. On the second day, God separated the waters from the waters. And on the third day, he gathered the waters into one place and caused dry land to appear. The earth that was once formless now has form. And all that remains is for the void now to be filled. And that work of filling the earth occupies the days of 4, 5, and 6 with the uh, fish, then with man and the beasts, um, and, uh, or I'm sorry, and then also with the plants and etc. And so now, according to his righteous judgment, God condemns his unrighteous world by decreating it. That is, reverting it to its original condition. The waters overcome the earth, washing over once more the dry, hospitable land, returning it to a watery waste. It's formless and void once again. God undoes his good work on account of what it had become. But again, rather than all coming to naught, God's promise in the garden will be accomplished. Noah and his family are spared, and God instructs him to build an ark which will be a refuge that will see him through the end of all things into a new creation. On the other side, the human race will again, um, will begin again, rather, on an earth cleansed from violence. So God orders the remnant in, and verse 16 of chapter 7, he closed the door behind them. No other place is safe. There is no other ark that the Lord has sealed from judgment. In they go, and the decreating waters are released. And this part of the narrative um, concludes with the sobering words in chapter 7, verse 23. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the land. God decreates, and then he recreates. In the beginning... When God acts to deal with those waters that covered the earth, um, it's indicated in the phrase in verse 2. It says, the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Now, Spirit in Hebrew is just the word ruach, and it is the same word that's used here in our passage, Genesis 8.1. It says, God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark, and God caused a wind a ruach, same word, to pass over the earth and the waters subsided. So from the midst of decreation, God remembers the righteous man and he delivers him. The waters do not recede on their own by some natural process, but by God's act. God sends his ruach, his spirit, to push back the abyss and cause the dry land to appear once more. In fact, when God delivers his people, you'll find that the wind is always an ever-present thing. Read the book of Exodus and the beginning of Joshua and note the presence of the wind at the decisive moment. The wind of God, the Spirit of God. Anyway, after it's decreated and recreated, Noah stepped in out of the ark 
onto the dry land. He's the end of one creation and the beginning of another. He's the last and the first of the human race. Indeed, the text presents Noah as basically Adam 2.0. He's the father of a new humanity. And that promise made concerning Noah, he will bring us rest, is brought to completion. Chapter 8, verse 4, in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. The ark rested. Noah steps from the ark, and now the creation project begins again. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Here the creation blessing and mandate is repeated. It's bestowed upon humanity once more. Noah comes from the waters victorious at the helm of a new creation as the head of a new humanity. And so it would seem the serpent is defeated. God's cleansed the world and it's time to begin again like it was in the garden with Adam. And in many respects, the serpent is defeated, though partially. Creation is restored to its original beginning and there is some degree of rest except in one crucial respect. And that's the heart. That was the one thing that was not cleansed in the flood. God promises to never again destroy every living thing, despite the fact that, verse 21, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. So that door that Cain failed to close remains permanently open in every last heart. The serpent, though his works have been washed from the earth, still exercises his dominion in the secret recesses of the human soul. But God acts to ensure that he will never again corrupt the earth as he had done. God institutes a safeguard. He puts the exercise of justice in human hands. Verse 6, whoever sheds man's blood, he tells Noah, the new Adam, By man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he created them. So here's the establishment of human government. And it's there to curb the worst impulses of the human heart. Or as the apostle says, it is a minister who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Romans 13, 4. So rather than the flood being held and held and held until finally the waters are released, that role is put in the hands of the state, of human government. It's a minister of God to execute his wrath upon human wickedness. So it serves the same purpose as the floodwaters. And let's draw this to a close and turn toward our Lord Noah. He exercises that dominion originally promised to Adam, but now under the grim conditions of sin and death. And Noah's own story, right, comes to somewhat of an embarrassing end. Noah plants a vineyard, and then he drinks from the fruit of the wine and gets blackout drunk and naked, as one does. And something offbeat happens in the tent, and he ends up cursing one of his sons, Canaan, and blessing the other, Shem. It's Cain and Abel all over again, except without the murder. Canaan, whose name even sounds like Cain, is rejected, and Shem, hear the resemblance to Seth, is blessed. And the promised uh, seed carries on through the lineage of Seth. 
So if you finish chapter 9, get into verse 10, here we have another genealogy. It begins with Shem. Um, and it traces his descendants, again, ten generations, to Abraham, the next great figure in the story who we will consider next week. So let's turn to our Lord. Noah brings rest in the end, but it's partial and incomplete. Indeed, we'll see next week with the building of the Tower of Babel that not much had changed. The human heart remains what it is, and humanity careens down the same path that it was on. And so the story of the flood is a bit anticlimactic, and it leaves us wondering about this promise of rest. Where is our rest? Is there any rest for us? And of course, the answer is yes, there is rest in the greater Noah and his ark. It's the very nature of these Redeemer figures and these salvation events in the Old Testament to be incomplete, because all they ever are are signs, and they're always pointing to something greater. These stories are not ultimately about Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, and Noah and the ark. The meaning doesn't stop with them. They're about Jesus, whom the whole Scripture speaks to. It's Jesus who brings us this rust we long for. It's Jesus who delivers us from the waters of judgment. The Apostle Peter, in his first epistle, in chapter 3, he compares the flood to Christian baptism. He says that they correspond to one another in chapter 21. In other words, the ark and the flood are a picture, are a foreshadow of what baptism is for us. We, too, pass between the decreating waters in an ark. Now consider, what does baptism symbolize? What does it mean? What exactly are we baptized into? We're baptized into, Romans chapter 6, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus in the Gospels compare his own death and resurrection to? He says, I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. He tells the proud um, James and John, are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Jesus himself is plunged beneath the waters of death, and he's delivered into new life in his resurrection. And our baptism symbolized this reality. We have been placed within Jesus, the ark of God, and the door has been shut behind us. There is no other salvation than in Jesus. No other name upon which men can call that they would be saved. So the water doesn't pass over us, but we pass through the water. In baptism, we are submerged beneath the waters as the sinful world was underneath the flood. And what that rite of baptism means to communicate, what it speaks to is our is the death of our former life. That life was washed from us. Peter says it's a washing, verse 21, not for the removal of the dirt of the flesh, but for a good conscience. Meaning the water doesn't just cleanse the, the, the outside, but the Spirit cleanses the inside. So the waters of baptism symbolize our forgiveness and cleansing. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we are all made to drink of one spirit, and his presence scours our hearts and cleans them. 
And as such, our consciences are silenced. They are put to rest. There's hardly an anxious toil, am I right, of in this life greater than a bad conscience. A bad conscience eats away at our peace. Wherever we go, we take it with us. And our only options are to sear our conscience so that we feel it no more and so that it doesn't, its pangs don't drag us down or we cleanse it from dead works in the work of the Spirit. And so Jesus brings rest by putting our conscience at rest. The pollution and corruption of the old world is washed away from our hearts as we are carried safely through the waters in him. He's our ark in whom we can approach the Father in confidence and assurance, no longer cowering as Adam did in the garden. Eden is restored to our hearts. The way of life, the way rather to the tree of life is open once more. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And let's end here. The floodwaters also prefigure the last judgment, when the earth will be decreated and recreated once more. This time, not through water, but through fire. Jesus says, Matthew 24, 37, As it was in the days of Noah, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus' first advent is a type of the flood and saving ark, and so also is his return. He will deliver us from the judgment once more in the ark of his body. And then we'll find ourselves, just as Noah and his family, setting foot in the new heavens and the new earth. And that rest that's been promised to us will become a reality. When Jesus returns, all that had made for our anxious toil will be removed once and for all. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. Jesus will deliver us through judgment into a new reality where all things have been made new. And the first and the last words of our life, our lives will be rest. On that day, as Augustine says, we shall rest, we shall rest and see, we shall see and love, and we shall love and praise. So as we come now to the table, as the Lord invites us to commune with him, I would just like you to encourage you to remember and to partake in Jesus, who is the ark of our deliverance. Remember the rest that he has toiled for on our behalf. Remember that he has drowned your sins in the wood of his cross and that he will soon return to crush the serpent under your feet. So I'd invite you up now to receive the elements, um, to take them back to your places, and I'll lead us in communion in just a moment.